Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I'm really excited to share today's episode with you. It's with Eric Verspui, who is the co-founder of Paleo Robbie, which is a leading health food service and provider, I would say, in Thailand. I'll let Eric explain the business, but I wanted to have him on the show for a couple of reasons. I, I should first give the context my personal reasons. So, you know, since we talk about mental and physical health through the lens of ancient wisdom and modern science, paleo and the paleo movement is something I've become increasingly interested in over the last six months in particular, I would say. I was on a pescatarian diet for, I've been on a pescatarian diet for most of the last, I guess, six or seven years. And I've experimented with different things throughout that. So, you know, I went vegan for a while and that for me sent my body into a place of real imbalance. And then I went back to pescatarianism and, and now I'm in a place where, you know, more for the sake of variety, I started mixing things up and, and not just having fish. And in part, that was a response to doing some testing for minerals and heavy metals through a hair analysis and realizing that although my heavy metals were really low overall, my mercury was not alarmingly high, but fairly high. And that's not surprising, I guess, given that I'm someone who's eating a lot of fish and including some larger fish. And that was a disproportionate amount of my diet. So I've started having more variety in my food instead of doing fish several times a week. Maybe it's just once or twice and, you know, I avoid tuna and things like that. I'm more conscious about wild caught, but then I'll also have more variety. I'll have a little bit of, you know, free range chicken, occasionally some lamb or some grass fed beef. And so I've been ordering from Paleo Robbie, which is this wonderful company uh, in Thailand, which has really high quality wild caught fish and, and grass fed beef and uh, lamb and things like that. But, you know, regardless of where you're located, I just want to raise a little bit of awareness and have a conversation with, with folks on some of these issues, especially as someone who wasn't coming from a particular background where I had an orientation towards this viewpoint. And so I think Eric is a really great wealth of resources for kind of diving into this topic about not only food, and here's the thing that interests me a lot about paleo, you know, I'm really, I really resonate, I think, with the paleo approach beyond just food in terms of really thinking about how we evolved and thinking about the benefits of sort of living like our ancestors lived in a way that makes sense. You know, we want to take advantage of all the benefits of modern technology, but really thinking seriously about the implications of evolutionary biology and recognizing that, you know, hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of years of evolution have imprinted things on us, you know, in an important way. And we also evolved in harmony with our environment. So thinking about the importance of, for example, your circadian rhythm and being aligned to nature, you know, getting really important proper exposure to natural light earlier in the day, not only for vitamin D, but it's essential for sleep later in the evening and then reducing exposure to artificial light later at night. And I could go on and on and on about that, but just that basic approach beyond just food. And so I think that's something I would flag for people who might be new to paleo or new to this discussion. And Eric was very into talking about this, even though, you know, he has a, his business is providing high quality food. You know, he, we talked not only about his business, we also talked about some of his personal health hacks as well. And what he views as essential for, you know, really optimizing your physical and mental health beyond just eating. And so that's something I'd encourage people to think a lot about. And so I think it was really great. It made a lot of sense, given the emphasis on the show of ancient wisdom and modern science to start to bring someone from the paleo movement into the discussion a bit on this show. So I thank Eric for his time. And I would definitely uh, encourage anyone who is based in Thailand and, or who happens to be passing through Thailand to check out paleorabi.com and we'll include the links in the show notes. But 
extremely high quality products of wild caught fish and grass fed beef and a range of other things. And and for those who aren't here, just start becoming more conscious about things like I had fish for a long time and didn't really think about some of the issues with farm raised fish, you know. So Hopefully this conversation will begin to spark some of these thoughts for some people. And I know we have a lot of people in the audience who are really knowledgeable as well. So we'd love to hear from you with things that you learn or have to add. You can share that on Hacking the Self Facebook page. I'm more active there now than I am on Twitter. Um, but the Facebook page is a great place to do that. You can also email me at hackingtheself at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much to Eric, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right. Well, Eric, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me and to come on Hacking the South. So first of all, let me just thank you for your time and, and glad to be speaking with you as someone, especially who's a consumer enjoying your products. Well, thank you for the invite and I'm uh, very happy to be on your podcast. So let's start out for people who just aren't familiar with you or Paleo Robbie, just telling people a little bit about what you do and how you got interested in this line of work. So Paleo Robbie got started about five years ago as a business. Before that, it was purely a, a hobby born out of a, an interest in a healthy lifestyles. So it was basically scratching, uh, scratching my own my own uh, itch. I wanted to eat healthy and living in Bangkok back in, you know, I started coming here in 2006. I got a permanent job here at, at, a, at a bank. And there's just no healthy food options, uh, especially around offices. Everything is refined foods. Everything is deep fried or it's uh, street food. So uh, my brother came in to also to Thailand about 2012 as well. And he had an eye-opening experience basically with doing a paleo lifestyle experiment. And uh, his background is very different than mine. Uh, he is a professional poker player while I went through a corporate career track. But he really liked the lifestyle in Thailand and he wanted to leave here while I was here already for six years uh, at that time. So I was kind of thinking, hey, let's move on. But he and this big community of poker players and digital nomads living in Bangkok, they're like, food delivery, there's no options, we want healthy food. So it became a business basically purely by scratching our own itch and a lot of like-minded people actually being based in Thailand. Interesting. So to what extent, you know, and I wanted to ask you, you know, what were some of the obstacles that you encountered early on as a business and I'm asking this specifically as someone who lives in Thailand and for others who live in Asia, they might know uh, that there's a, the level of awareness around healthy eating is just way, way lower than you might find in, in any Western countries. But perhaps, you know, you started alluding to maybe there was some really pent up demand for it. And I'm just, I'm wondering to what extent was that was the case versus you actually had to be proactively educating consumers and, and raising awareness? Well, that's how we got started. That was the, the idea we had. Hey, we have to educate. We have to get the word out. But we quickly found out is that unless people are already into a healthy lifestyle and value uh, healthy food, they don't really want to know or they're not really open to it because it's, uh, you know, whole, whole foods are not as convenient. They're more expensive. They're more difficult to come by. So we ended up going to farmer's markets actually in the beginning because we, we started bootstrap basically just using our own funds and it was a hobby anyway. And a lot of uh, like-minded people actually that are into healthy lifestyle, they gather at farmer's markets and we have an opportunity to interact and talk to people. And I think every market we did, we got about, you know, 15, 20 new customers each time. That's how it got started. But that was mostly, I would say, back in the day, 90, 95% would be expats or like digital nomads because they already had uh, from the previous places they've lived they picked up a lot on the importance of eating real food. While locally, uh, and this has changed a lot over the last five years, definitely 2012, there was almost no interest in healthy food. Everything was about authentic street food, Michelin star experiences, it's a gourmet Epicurean weeks at five-star hotels. But that has shifted a lot, I would say, in the last especially three years, dozens of new, especially clean food companies came up. So there's a, there's a big interest also from the local Thai population now. 
And what do you think caused that shift among the local Thai population? Well, I would say Thailand follows trends a lot from other countries, uh, and the healthy trends do seem to flow over from the U.S. and Europe into Thailand. But they are kind of like a little bit behind in terms of trends. So here it's like completely fresh and new, and same as the uh, so in the in the U.S. and Europe, the whole healthy movement and the paleo movement kind of grew out of a backlash from you know processed food and how it's everywhere and. and all the foods these days and how that has led to chronic illnesses at an unprecedented rate. Thailand is also having that nutritional problem and basically chronic illnesses are on the rise plus they see all these trends and topics from other countries. So those two forces, I would say, explain the, the interest and the pop- increased popularity in the, amongst the Thai people. And I, I know that you know we're based in Thailand here. I'm sure you've been very focused on running and building your business up within the country. I'm just curious, do you have a sense in places like, and I'm thinking specifically of Hong Kong and Singapore, very international places and places that often have their finger on the pulse more closely in terms of what's going on in New York or London or LA, sort of what the health food scene is like there and consumer consciousness is like there compared to what's going on in Thailand? We have looked at expanding internationally over the years a few times. And we actually think that in a small country like Singapore, the market would be of people who would be interested in this kind of service would actually be bigger than Bangkok, even though Bangkok has a much larger population due to you know the, the lifestyle that people have, the more and their education background, etc. But I think what I when I look at those places, I have not seen uh, any business trying to do what we do. There was lots of food startups. But they tend to go the VC mass audience route where they just offer processed foods or cheap noodles. I have not seen any uh, food startup in any of those countries where they really take nutrition seriously and offer, you know, the healthiest possible foods. Yeah, my sense is that and I'm, you know, I'm a novice in both places and I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm definitely biased by the fact that I, I know Hong Kong better than Singapore because I have a good friend who lives there and I spend more time there. But my sense when I spent time in both places was that Hong Kong is further ahead in, than Singapore in that respect. And I don't, I didn't see anyone who's doing what you're doing and I'm pretty sure I'd be aware of it because my friend who lives there and who I talk to regularly is very health conscious, but the they do have something like if you're familiar with Mana, their Mana is this very popular chain of health food restaurants. It's slow food fast is their tagline. And it's a really, really high quality, well done place. And so even just seeing places like Mana, is something that uh, it was obvious when that came on the scene a few years ago that there was just sort of this emergence of consciousness within Hong Kong, and it's relatively mm. new. Yeah, I haven't thought, heard of Mana, but I'm happy that uh, Hong Kong is you know having startups like this as well. And I'm uh, my guess why there's not many more is because of simple economics. Whole foods, real foods, are three to five times more expensive than their industrial factory processed equivalents. So normal restaurants if you go to you know uh, any restaurant their food cost is a fraction of the price that you actually pay our food philosophy from the beginning was always like paleo ingredients at wholesale prices we actually our mission was to make eating healthy available and convenient so our food cost of revenue has always been 60 to 70 percent so our gross margin basically to be able to uh, run the business has only been 30 percent and that's, as far as I know, unprecedented. So from the beginning, we set up this like super efficient, everything online type business model where basically, can I order by line? Can I order by phone? Like, no, you have to go through the website. Can I have this option? Can I have that option? Can I have Monday's meal delivered on a Friday? No, we had to like get rid of all those things that would cause a lot of uh, manual work. And we got started with three staff, basically. And with only three people, we were able to service the first 200 customers. 
And I think that is a, a very, a very difficult thing to do. I remember, you know, both me and my uh, brother definitely had to be focused on the business seven days a week in the beginning to build the systems, to build the automation, the website, and to be, make sure to get everything right too. Because our goal was, we don't need to make a lot of profit, but we don't want to make a loss. And I think most people in that have experience in the F&B, the, 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 in the di- especially the dining scene, when they look at the food costs of wild fish and you know healthy big portions of pasteurized meats, they're just like, no, that's not going to work. One thing, before we go any deeper, I realize that we should maybe flesh out a couple really basic things. For people who are totally new and they're not they're not familiar at all with what paleo is or paleo diet, can you define just even like a really basic definition of what that means to eat in a paleo way? That's a very good question. I think it was Lauren Cordain who wrote a book, The Paleo Diet, a really long time ago. It must be at least 30 years ago. And people have taken it from there. But when we mention paleo, we kind of refer to more like a, a framework to understand, you know, how we as homo sapiens have evolved and how the diet that we have followed over millions of years have been part of our evolution. So to why we are a bipedal species, why we have such big brains, why, uh, and at the same time, over a million years, why our brain started to grow, our gut started to shrink. Everything has a evolutionary reason and it has to, and it's linked with the type of foods we eat. So we are biologically classified as an omnivore. That means we, for, to get all of our nutrients, we basically need to eat a variety of plants and animals. And using the paleo framework, you can kind of basically determine or come up with guidelines to what you should be eating to be the healthiest person possible. So uh, normally in conventional medicine or when you talk to a doctor and you ask them for the definition of what is health, their answer will be, well, not being sick, being free of illnesses. Uh, We highly disagree with that definition. I think especially 2019 being healthy means feeling awesome, having lots of energy and enjoying your life fully. So for, if you have a diet that is not natural to you, uh, but you can survive on, you could live very high uh, to a very high age. That's, we don't call that, that's not a definition of, of health. Eating super nutrient-dense foods like avocados and fish, things that we evolved on, uh, that our brain and our body thrives on, that's what we uh, define basically as uh, really healthy food. And that's, and you know, paleo is just the, uh, it's just a framework to help us explain in the form of a story to people why certain foods are healthy and why others aren't. But it's also the story of our uh, beginnings, basically, because, you know, the reason why this our company exists and, you know, many countries around the world have these healthy food outfits is, you know, we're all born in the paleo, the, the birth of the paleo movement. Okay, so that question was a little more, and thank you for that, Eric, to just sort of flesh things out for people who might not be familiar. So with those, for people who are a little more into this stuff, I'll ask the following question. I'm curious about this. You know, to what extent is paleo synonymous with or in certain ways distinct from a Weston A. Price kind of diet? Because it seems like there's a lot of overlap, but perhaps they're not totally the same. And if so, what's the distinction? I would say this is a personal definition. You will find different definitions depending on uh, the person you talk to. But uh, what I really value you know, about everything paleo is that Everyone kind of seems to, well, part of the community to take the latest scientific research and the scientific consensus as the starting point for, you know, what is healthy, what should we be doing, what potentially be solutions to certain chronic illnesses. We could just use science as a, as a guideline. And if there's, if it's not proven, um, then we just remain agnostic about it for the time being. So that's very different, I think, compared to like other diets or other uh, food philosophies. Okay. I was thinking with the Weston A. Price, I'm not sure to what extent you're familiar with, but there's an emphasis. He talks about the importance of like eating organ meats, for example, and not just muscle meat. And also having bone broth and yeah. Correct. So Weston A. Price probably looks at it from a pure anthropological standpoint. So we both agree on that fact that, you know, animal organ meat is the most nutrient dense food the homo sapiens can eat. 
And this was their preferred, like after a kill, or like during a hunt, organs, when, when the tribe members had to divide up, basically the animal, the, like often the liver was one of the most prized parts because it's, and you know, also from scientific research, yes, the vitamin, the nutrient density of liver is more than, I believe, 10 times uh, the equivalent of if you put like all kinds of fruits. So basically, you only need to eat a tiny bit of liver to get to replenish almost all your vitamins and minerals. So we, we agree on that part. I would say paleo looks at it uh, from different angles, not just anthropological. We kind of look also like, you know, what does modern science have to say about it? Got you. Okay. That definitely clarified things for me. So thank you. I appreciate that. So getting back to your business in the business model, I think one thing to clarify for people in case they missed it, you know, you're not offering, you know, you talked about having online deliveries and people order their food. And just to clarify, you you are not doing a brick and mortar storefront kind of restaurant. Correct. So one of the early decisions on where we said, okay, we want to provide as much value for money to people who want to eat healthy every day. Where can we save costs? Um, of course, having service staff, being open seven days a week, having a you know premier retail space. Those are all costs that had to go. And we focused on, you know, delivery only. If you have like a, and whatever we did, we try, instead of doing lots of different things, we just did one thing, four meals a day and nothing else. Right. So you have meal plans people can order. I saw, which looks great. I just wanted to clarify that for people who might be listening and wherever they are in different locations and looking for sort of inspiration or possibly to start something in their area, that that's the kind of model you all have been running successfully. Correct. That's how we got started. So basically, you just offer, I think, 100, 120 different meals that we rotate. But of course, if you eat every day for months, you'll start to recognize certain meals. But I think the variety is, uh, is quite good, I would say. And also reducing the choice to just four meals a day, I think, is a, is a game changer for a lot of people because a lot of people often don't oh, i don't know what to eat well these are the only four things on the menu so pick one you like best so that's kind of worked and uh, another very unique thing is is that you have to order for the whole week so we every friday we send out a reminder to everyone hey make sure you order for next week to make sure to have healthy food delivered to you fresh uh, every day so for myself as well on friday uh, late afternoon uh, oh shit didn't think about what to eat uh, tonight so if i have a let's say a nice healthy meal in the fridge waiting for me i don't have to order pizza or a pasta so that has saved me quite a few times right that's a great point about not overwhelming people with choice you know it's sort of like avoiding the netflix dilemma where it's like you know you scroll through and then eventually you don't watch anything because it's just so overwhelming <laughs> that's a great idea I'd love to hear, you know, you've been running the business now for how many years is it? Five years? We're in, yeah, five years and we're going into our sixth year now. Okay, wonderful. So I'm wondering, can you identify sort of one mistake that really jumps out as sort of a, maybe a, a tough growing pain or just something you really learned from and was a powerful business lesson for you? There's so many actually. Feel free to pick a few. Top exactly. So one of the first ones that comes to mind is when we originally planned and designed how the business should be, there's a lot of things that, you know, were just completely over-designed and unrealistic because you have to take into account people that are going to use the system. So I'm talking about like internal human resources. So you have to build in a lot more redundancy and you have to really take into account how you know people are going to work uh, every day and enjoy the job every day rather than, you know, this is the function, this is what people should be doing. So you have to really have to take a lesson learned for me was when you design systems or ways to do businesses, really take in the human element a lot more. So most of my learning lessons, I would say, would be around balancing efficiency versus uh, human resources. Hmm, interesting. I didn't know if, if that's what you were going when you said taking in the human element. At first, I didn't know if you you meant that in a sense of like empathizing with your the consumer and learning to design no, yeah, the product. It's more, no, it's more, okay. um, I, would, I would say 
the marketing is definitely not the most challenging part of running a business and definitely not in Thailand. It is starting a business is also quite easy in Thailand, I would say, but scaling it. Uh, so we've been growing, you know, doubling the business almost every year. Now that we've actually reached a certain scale, we're no longer doubling anymore, but still it's pretty steep growth. So just managing through that growth and building new systems and hiring and training and balancing those two uh, together, uh, lots of learnings in that area. What's made it so hard to scale? I mean, part of it, I could imagine with the consumer base, if your your product is for a relatively small amount of the population, i.e. expats, you know, and the, but but what else about it makes it hard to scale in Thailand? Well, we we're doing something we call like it was a greenfield startup. So we're doing something from completely scratch, almost no resources and no formula to copy. So we kind of had to figure it out as we went. Uh, so especially like in terms of IT choices, in terms of you know how what we did over the years. Sometimes we had to pivot a little bit. So the, the combination of, you know, figuring it out, being having huge growth without a fixed formula, that has been uh, quite a challenge. And uh, because we chose a highly automated way of doing business, the, uh, you know, software development has been quite a bit, of, uh, has, has been quite a challenge as well. So if you could give one piece of advice to an early stage entrepreneur, you know, starting a business in Thailand or Southeast Asia, but it could be anywhere, what would it be? I would say keep it simple. And in Thailand, everything takes a bit longer. So basically put your mindset for the long term and enjoy the path that, that you're on every day, I would say. Because I see a lot of people being that are starting their own business, trying to grow it, uh, like frustrated that things always uh, takes longer than they thought. But, you know, having your own business is also fantastic. So managing your expectations, you're running a business in Thailand, gives you a lot of freedom. But yeah, things take a little bit of time and just keep it simple so you can enjoy your life at the same time. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you to elaborate on on that idea of simplicity maybe you meant it from a, a balance you know being able to balance your personal life more i was once again wondering if you were were saying that with a, from a branding marketing perspective uh, how do you mean well i didn't know in terms of like in terms of keeping it simple keeping the concept very simple just being very clear in terms of speaking to a very uh, specific type of consumer if you were referring to that or you just mean sort of on a very basic personal level for just managing work-life balance no, mostly in terms of like the business model itself like don't do don't try to do too many things at the same time do one a few things just really well rather than trying to do everything gotcha okay and don't overcomplicate things which i'm very guilty of myself yeah, I think I could take your advice as well. So <laughs> I'll thank you for that. So, you know, since you just touched on the idea of, you know, sort of enjoying the ride, perhaps we can uh, we can use this as a segue and maybe we can even come back to the whole paleo diet nutrition. But I'm wondering how you really manage that as an entrepreneur, you know, and someone who's running a growing business. And perhaps you can do this by giving us like what your absolute top five things are in terms of what you feel give you the most yield in terms of not only physical health, but maybe just satisfaction, but like what makes it into uh, your daily routine or just sort of a few times a week, like absolute essential things that Eric must do. So you're talking about what I personally do or what my personal preferences are to kind of balance, of course, the busy workload versus, you know, the, the health philosophy that I have. Yeah. It could be exercise. It could be, you know, meditation, journaling, whatever your personal routines, habits are, things like that, that you find, you know, are essential for optimal performance and, and just sort of general wellness. Yeah. I do meditate 10 minutes every morning and Monday to Friday, I try to be as strict as, as possible. And I also do intermittent fasting. So basically I stop from Monday to Friday. I basically only eat between noon and, and 8 p.m. And I uh, enjoy my own uh, paleo meal for lunch every day. But then on the weekend, I tend to socialize a bit more. So then of course I just go to a restaurant like everyone else and I enjoy a few glasses of wine. Um, then 
then I would say I do take some supplements, but my preference is to you know get everything uh, from real food uh, because that's always a superior source. But I just uh, at the moment I take a bit of magnesium, uh, fish oil, and uh, Mariva 500, and that has also to do with my personal genetics. So I use that kind of as a, as a sum. So for example, my gen- I have several genotypes that make me. Uh, gives me a higher uh, stress response so my uh, to reduce the inflammation that I have. That's why I take like a, a curcumin compound and the meditation, of course, helps as well. And I've, I would say that's probably the, those are the basics of what I do on a weekly basis. Do you use adaptogens as well, reishi mushrooms, ashwagandha for the adrenal support? No, I try to keep my supplements at a, at a bare minimum. So I, haven't, I, have, I do like to experiment with things. So I did, for example, lion's mane, alpha lipoic acid, uh, all these like nootropics or anti-aging things that are coming out because I do like to, you know, have firsthand experience to see what, so I can relate to all the, the research that's coming out, but I don't put it as part of my lifestyle. Gotcha. What's the distinction to you between supplements and food? For example, like why eat you know, mushrooms, whether it be lion's mane or reishi or chaga, why is it okay to eat them as food or to drink them as tea, but to not have them as a powder form? And then when you have it in a powder in a packet, then all of a sudden it's a supplement. It's like, what, what's the real distinction between them? I think we're touching biochemistry a little bit. So the, you know, the, 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 like if you not eat whole foods in their natural form, Basically, we, because we've been eating those type of foods for, for so many years, all the processes and, um, inside your body are adjusted to the form that you're taking in all these compounds from the food. Now, if you're trying, if you're starting to manipulate or just, uh, isolate certain compounds from whole food form, they will be absorbed and have a different effect inside of your body. And I think I recently saw a quick video from what I've learned, popular YouTube channel, and he did a, a quick, I think, 20-minute video on exactly this. And he mentioned this example of, I think, uh, folic acid, and which uh, during pregnancy is taken a lot. And if you don't take it from real food, you have to be very careful in what uh, formulation you take Take it. Otherwise, it can actually get you into more trouble. So that's the problem with, with supplements. You have to do your research really, really well, I would say. And real, if you whole foods is just a much safer source of whatever nutrient you're trying to get. Right. Or else you're consuming them in a form that's potentially too high. Whereas if you consume it in a whole food, it just sort of naturally built in. You're not going to consume too much. Correct. Yeah. Like, like for example, you can overdose on vitamin D and vitamin A quite easily. But if you eat, for example, grass-fed liver, it's you know you won't overdose on any of those vitamins unless you eat the liver of a polar bear. Yeah, the only thing I'll say about the vitamin D, and I've had to do, I'm not as familiar with vitamin A, but I've had to, I really have to up my vitamin D levels, and that has to do with my genetics and my specific health problems. So once again, you know, everyone's situation is different. But for what it's worth, my doctor, who's a real sort of expert in the area, he's a, you know, a stem cell expert and lectures at UCSF in San Francisco, said that with respect to vitamin D levels, just most people overwhelmingly are so deficient that there's not a real concern there. And his take was, and I'd love to hear more on the rationale, but that actually vitamin D toxicity is something that is really overblown and that he's had people come in with extremely high levels over a hundred things like that. And, um, that there are not real side effects associated with that and that people very easily return to normal levels. Oh yeah. Like I would say a hundred is still pretty close to the optimal level, which I think Rhonda Patrick puts at like 60 to 85, if I believe. Right. So it's not that dramatic, but if, okay. you're, if you go towards like 300, oh, you know, you're okay. Got you. yeah. overshooting. Because if you're, a lot of people take 20,000 IU a day, 
and vitamin D build, builds up. So if you're, especially if you're taking more than 5,000 IU a day, I would get uh, some blood work done just in case. Yeah. Okay. So got you. I didn't know when we were referring to, you see, once again, it's like a lot of these things, normal reference range at a hospital. And, you know, I've had doctors tell me, some doctors, well, you shouldn't be over 60 or 70, you know, and then they'll tell you 30 is okay. Like if you go to Way Hospital, it says 30 is like normal, whereas 30 really is too low, I think, for most people. Uh, you can survive on it. Certainly. But I think you, uh, like a person, this is, of course, highly personal. Uh, the effect on, you know, taking vitamin D as a supplement is, uh, is, is individual. And I personally noticed that if I uh, am in a cold climate country, haven't seen the sun for a while, and I take uh, 10,000 IU vitamin D for a few days, I feel a lot more energetic. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. Well, that's helpful. Just sort of in terms of clarifying that. One thing that I wanted to go back and talk about is fasting. And a little ironic since you're running a food company and we can talk about food, but let's talk about not eating food for a little bit because this is a hot topic now. Well, no, I know it's a very paleo thing to sort of believe that we're in sort of cycles of fast and famine and that's how we evolved to eat. Well, even more ironic uh, when people always, uh, very, we, I did give talks one twice month uh, in, in Bangkok and you know a question I we always get like hey if there's one thing I can do to improve my health what would it be uh, the advice that I learned from Chris Cresser is basically cook yourself now that's ironic because I, I sell ready <laughs> meals <laughs> that's true so yeah don't buy my meals cook yourself uh, do, do the work the, yourself. That's the healthiest thing. No, you you do, do sell them the food that they can buy and cook themselves as well. That started, uh, that's more recent. Oh, really? So basically, okay. yeah. So I think when we had about 600 people ordering with us, they started, there was a lot of families as well, uh, expat families mostly. And they decide, hey, I like to cook. I cannot find your, your ingredients in the supermarket. Can I buy them directly from you? We resisted that for a while because that would, you know, you get two different business models and we have to have a separate ordering page for that but we did it anyway and we didn't i would say that's two and a half three years i think only but that has now overtaken the the meal plan service so that's it's bigger and it's it's uh we only have 600 ingredients on there so it's very different than a, than a normal supermarket that has like twenty thousand skus Robbie curates all the items basically, and he's very picky. So there's just like the 600 items that we have found that you know we believe uh, is part of healthy cooking. Nice. So, sorry, back to your original point, you were talking about the importance of cooking from home and also just, so fasting in general. So I'm curious, you you eat within this window, you do intermittent fasting. It sounds like you've got a 16 hour window that you're doing five days a week. To what extent are then you doing 24 hour fast? Are you doing extended multi-day fast? Do you do, a, and if so, do you do water only fasting, mimicking diet? What's the rest of your fasting protocol look like? Well, the the sixteen eight is is completely practical. Uh, I would say it, that's something that I can adhere to potentially the rest of my life. Doesn't give me any challenge, so to say, and that's also the reason why I don't do prolonged fasting as often as I maybe should. I'm always talking about it, but it never happens. <laughs> I would love to do a prolonged fast to cycle into ketosis, maybe like four times a year, uh, but. I haven't done it this year yet, but I'm always planning to do it. So my goal is four times a year to do like a four or five day uh, water fast. Okay. I'm, I'm about to do, uh, I'm going to start, I'm going to try that over the next year quarterly and I'm going to do the fasting mimicking diet if you're familiar with Walter Longo's plan. Yeah, I've uh, heard, listened to several of, of his podcasts, uh, but the I think the counter argument for that is like if if it may like for some people it's harder than doing a plain water fast oh interesting so i, f I think it's uh, might be an individual like so if 
I would say try a water fast first for four days. And if that was just too hard, you then give the uh, fast and mimicking diet uh, a go, I would say. Because it's not necessary, like eating only 400 calories a day is not necessarily easier. Right. It almost, it gives you a little, it almost whets your appetite and then you want to eat more, that kind of feeling. Exactly. And I believe, I'm not sure there was a website that's uh, where you can, I think it's only in the US where you can have the fast and mimicking diet delivered. Uh, so they, they give you food, I believe, for, for one whole week, and it's just like one small bag, and it includes like biscuits and stuff. So uh, I think it's more paleo to, you know, just doing a proper four or five day fast. The only thing that I heard on that from some people I trust and respect, I can't remember Rhonda Patrick's take, but I know Tim Ferriss said that it was quite brutal doing a water only fast in terms of the effect it had on his sleep and other things. And when he started doing, I think he's doing three to 400 calories and he has some electrolytes as well, but then basically maybe just some MCT powder, but that it really made a difference in terms of uh, his ability to actually get a decent night's sleep. Yeah, I think if you're referring to Tim Ferriss, I think he his protocol uh, that he developed together with, I think, uh, advice of Rhonda Patrick and others was to be able to cycle into ketosis as quick as possible so that you become fat adapted within 24 hours. And that was a combination yeah, of some, some supplements with you know, no or very low calories and brisk walking, uh, which apparently worked for, uh, worked for him. But I think what is more important here is basically doing it more often. So the first time you cycle into ketosis, or I, I still remember my first time where I was literally lightheaded for two days and I, you know, I would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and being fully alert. I'm like, what the hell is going on? So it was kind of weird in the beginning, but if you do it more often, so I have a, I have a friend who does it, really does it seven day fast four times a year for the last two, three years now. And he basically also says the more often you do it, the easier it becomes. So uh, at this moment, I can do two day fast without much mental effort. You referenced ketosis a couple times. So I'm wondering to, to what extent are you, um, is sort of going on, perhaps diet's not the right word, but does going into ketosis figure in as an important part of your nutritional and, and wellness plan? That's an interesting question, actually. And that's something I do discuss often with Robbie as a, you know, is this an area we want to go into? I would say uh, following, you know, a diet, a ketogenic diet is really hard. So that's something potentially I myself couldn't always have because of the foods I like. And, you know, and you can just have a lot of the, the benefits by just eating uh, whole foods. But of course, for a lot of people who have specific issues, ketogenic uh, diet is a blessing for them. So it's, it's still a niche, I would say, but for people who can do it, it's, it's, you know, it's probably fantastic to be able to follow a, a ketogenic diet. But at the moment, we're, we're just offering a ketogenic option, uh, about one meal a day, I believe, which is just you know, high fat and uh, no, no, no honey, no fruits and no starch. I will say this. I was just in San Francisco, and that is definitely going to be one of the big new fads and trends for 2019 in the U.S., that you're starting to see keto on everything. It's going very mainstream. <laughs> you could almost say it's the new paleo. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but you're right. When so, people yeah, but, figure out how f hard it is to, to stay in ketosis, maybe it, it won't scale for the reason <laughs> Yeah, it won't scale uh, yeah, exactly. because of the challenges of that. Mm -hmm, exactly. But we're, I like the area a lot. The research that's coming out is is, is amazing in this area. So yeah, let's see. Um, we might do something in that area. Very cool. It certainly has a lot of benefits in a number of areas, including as an anti-cancer strategy. It looks pretty phenomenal. Mm -hmm, for sure. And then uh, the, one of the arguments that I like, if, you know, if you're using, if you're fully fat adapted and you're using uh, fat as your main energy, source where you can get nine calories out of every gram is that the amount of oxidation that happens inside your body uh, is a lot lower which you know has lots of slows down the aging effect as well so it's just kind of makes sense from a lot of angles it's just really hard to do right right that's interesting i did not hear that it basically reduces oxidative stress is what you're saying yes correct right. interesting huh 
Uh, so one thing I'm curious if this is part of your, uh, you didn't mention it. So if it's not, that's okay. But I'm curious because hot, cold exposure is another very popular topic right now. And perhaps you, we get enough of the heat in Thailand where you're not tempted to go in the sauna. But I'm curious if, if that figures into your routine at all. Uh, definitely, but I don't use the sauna to create the, the heat stress. So basically, I try to go to the gym at least four or five times a week where I built up to a certain uh, intensity. Uh, and very simple, I don't think I can find you know a local hygienic sauna that goes hot enough with an appropriate cold pool. So there's some like nice Japanese onsen around, but the plunge pool is 18 Celsius and the dry sauna doesn't go above 70 Celsius. So, you know, you barely start to sweat. It's, I think it's much more effective to do some high-intensity interval training. What's the plunge pool need to be in terms of Celsius to, like, get the positive benefits for cold? Well, uh, one reference temperature, and I think I picked this up from a Tim Ferriss podcast, is that I was uh, 8 Celsius as a minimum oh, wow. for the brown adipose tissue to be activated. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's cold. So basically you need, you need to like guarding, getting, if you sit in there for, for prolonged periods, meaning 10 minute plus, you need to start getting the shivers. If you don't get the shivers after like eight to 10 minutes, then it's probably not cold enough. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So eight degrees, that would be 46 Fahrenheit. So I was told Tony Robbins has his plunge pool at 55. I thought that was cold, but that would not even be cold enough according to that. I believe Tony Robbins uses cryotherapy. I think he does that too, but I know he jumps in a plunge pool every morning. Mm. Maybe that's just to wake up. Maybe for practical reasons as well. Yeah, like uh, like the first thing I do in the morning is like a shower followed by uh, like ten minute meditation. It's kind of like a a routine. Just like, but but we're in Thailand, so the the coldest your shower gets is like room temperature. So that also doesn't really work. So I did try the, the Wim Hof breathing method to follow that for like a whole week without the uh, cold exposure. Or there's an alternative where you basically can just take a small uh, plate or a bucket of water and then you put in ice and then you hold, just put in your hands for five minutes. Apparently that has a similar uh, cold exposure, a cold stress exposure effect as an alternative to a, a cold shower. But yeah, the cold shower thing is a bit of a challenge in Thailand. Definitely, definitely. I'm always wanting to take a cold shower, but yeah, it never quite gets cold enough. And of course, when you factor it in with the outside temperature, it's tough to believe you're really getting those the same benefits. It can't be analogous to taking the cold shower you know, in North America or Europe or wherever else. So you mentioned exercise and I'd love to hear about, you know, kind of your routine there. And then we can use that to segue to food because I'd love to talk about how you kind of combine that with your nutrition plan. But sort of what what's your exercise routine look like? There's a mix of variation and routine, I would say. So it's, it's highly personalized. I think if you hit the gym or do something active four times or more a week, you're doing pretty good already. So my, and my personal routine is two times heavy weights two times yoga, two times uh, like circuit training, high intensity interval. So I just mix right. it up, uh, basically. I like, to, I like to go rock climbing as well, you know, uh, whenever friends are around and on the social occasion. That's a good point. And I'm glad you kind of raised that because, you know, I started doing a little CrossFit recently and I liked it, but then I was listening to some other people like Ben Greenfield who are really knowledgeable about fitness. And it made me think if how many times a week is really ideal to do something like high intensity interval training if you're doing it for longevity i don't do you think that's not the kind of thing that one should be doing per se four or five times a week unless <laughs> if your goal is longevity well, definitely there's a especially for, if you look at top athletes who you know who run uh, 20 kilometers a day or just work out especially tri- triathletes who you know do endurance training two hours in the morning two hours in the late afternoon uh, they're wearing themselves out we all have the same blueprint we all have the same number of bones and muscles and there is wear and tear and there's oxidative uh, stress so and i think a lot of athletes that uh, trained a lot uh, when in their mid 40s they're starting to feel it 
so, but you know, I don't think that is the main problem. I don't think, um, I think most people exercise too little. There's very few people that exercise yeah. too much. Yeah. After you exercise, are you into, do you give good thought to timing your exercise in relation to when you're eating after that? Like, do you wait an hour or two after the exercise to eat? Yes, I do actually. So when I used to do uh, triathlons back in 2009, uh, my coach always said, you know, you have to eat within 45 minutes after exercise. And also during uh, a lot of uh, coaches and personal trainers always tend to give you that same advice, especially like starch uh, within 45 minutes of finishing your workout because it shortens your uh, recovery time, which actually might be true and it also accelerates, uh, might it, uh, help with hypertrophy. But then from a longevity standpoint, um, after a, especially a heavy workout, uh, you have a release of uh, growth hormones. And what those hormones are doing are also when you're in a fastest, uh, in a fasted state where your insulin is really uh, low is to kind of clean up your body and do a lot of re- general repair. So I think I got this from Art Devaney, who also makes sure that at la- after a you know heavy deadlift day, uh, at least 90 minutes after he finishes the workout, he doesn't eat anything. So you can look at it from both angles, and both are right. It depends on you know what's your objective. Right. Interesting. That's I've been trying to do that recently. It's similar to what I'd heard Ben Greenfield was saying. It's optimal to wait. 60 minutes to an hour, you know, to have in having that heavy starch meal after the, but waiting to do that after you, you exercise for a while and not even also not having antioxidants or other vitamins right away, right after you work out. Uh, yeah, there's, well, if you're trying to be a bodybuilder or trying to cut 3% body fat, you know, maybe whatever protocol I, I would not know, uh, but in terms for longevity, yeah, that, that doesn't necessarily make right. sense. Okay. So let's talk about nutrition. And I'm curious, you know, for people who are coming into this from a variety of angles, maybe a a whole spectrum, you know, maybe some people are totally new to this, maybe others are somewhat knowledgeable, Um, maybe a few others are, are, are deep into this wellness journey. You know, what would your... Assuming you're talking to someone who who really knew nothing and they're saying, Eric, if I could do, I'm so overwhelmed at work, you know, I don't have the mental bandwidth for a lot of things. If I can only make five changes, anything you can tell me to my diet, what would those five changes be that'll have the most yield? And I think you've already said one, if you want to start with it, which is cook from home. Correct, because then you can see what goes into your food automatically, which you know solves a lot of the problems. And kind of everyone knows what is bad for you. And then when you're cooking for your, uh, unless you're making dessert, of course, but when you're making your day-to-day meals, you're not going to add, you know, extra condensed milk, extra syrup, or you know, you know what's not good for you. So when you cook yourself, you kind of you already cut out. Uh, that's like the easy low-hanging fruit that you catch right there. And I think the second one would be to hang out with like-minded people. If you socialize with people who like to you know, drink 10 gin and tonics uh, a day and eat pizza every day, uh, you're gonna have a really hard time trying to be healthy, I would say. Uh, so having like a support group uh, joining a gym or anything you can do, or like for example, in like in Bangkok, we, we're trying to do more and more events now. So uh, we always get about 40, 50 people to show up. These are kind of like meetups where different speakers on a specific health topic, we get together, exchange ideas. So yeah, just get a, a social environment, I would say, that, that, that supports uh, your healthy goals. Number three advice, I would just like processed food and sugar, uh, just cut it out completely. Very simple. Like, and your cheat day is going out to a steak restaurant because if you're eating out, you know, they're still cooking in, you know, refined oils. They're still doing this, they're still doing that to the food. So for me, a cheat day is, you know, Wagyu grain fed steak. It's totally not paleo, it's very highly inflammatory, has no omega 3s. But a grain-fed steak is still 100 times better than anything with high concentration fructose syrup, um, which basically you should never eat. There is no, you know, or, uh, I would not recommend that uh, to anyone ever. Yeah, those are the three 
that come up first and you're you're for anybody that wants to start and then fourth one is just exercise moderately just you know do something something is more than nothing hit the gym if you can make it two times three times can't do you know a whole hour just exercise 20 minutes a day you know that's the start and if you can do that you know whenever you have the opportunity maybe you can do more fifth one i would say highly highly underestimated is the the impact that sleep and stress have on your life and they go really hand in hand uh with the food uh that you eat so if you know, if you don't eat a really big meal right before you go to sleep, you have a much or, or have alcohol or anything uh, before you go to sleep. You have a much better quality of sleep and for longevity, uh, for longevity, you know, all the lots of research is coming out uh, highlighting the importance of, of the importance of sleep and stress management. So that that will be it. Those will be the five. I love your recommendations and I love. Uh... Yeah, I love the way, you know, I was expecting, you know, you might talk about grass fed meat or whatever. I just, I, I love the way it is, even as someone who runs, you know, a company selling food, you're just giving like this basic, really holistic foundational advice. And I'm totally with you in terms of all these, especially how crucial sleep is. And I love actually, I think my favorite thing you said is the second one, just like the importance of community and tribe and for people who are looking to make a change like number one thing like connect with like-minded people because i think that's a really overlooked thing especially in our digital age and i think that uh it can be very 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 difficult to make these changes in isolation or like you said when a bunch of your friends are going out and having gin and tonics so that's probably i think the first step yeah. And if you look at people who live, you know, healthily and enjoy life over the age of 100, there's a few things they always have in common. A strong community. They have a, they're like active in the community. They have a social life and they tend to eat uh, whole foods grown locally. So this is where I think also the blue zone thing, they kind of picked up on that. Uh, they might not have drawn the right conclusions from that research, but that was very insightful because I think also the, the number one factor, what made these blue zone populations uh, different was their uh, sense of community and still being active at a high age. Totally. And I'm, I'm totally into a lot of, you know, technology and I enjoy a lot of the biohacking, you know, talk and, and things like that. But it's worth pointing out the obvious that, you know, no one in the blue zone communities, like they weren't doing CrossFit and then going to an infrared sauna. Those sauna, you know, though it's fair that some of these, you know, sauna and, and cold things like that, sure. Yes, that was a part of like onsen of, of many places. Like a lot of the things that people are really geeking out on now or thinking that you have to do, they didn't have all these things or these fancy supplements. It was really, really basic. And community is definitely the common denominator across all of these populations. Yeah. On, the, on the activity of infrared sauna as an also cryotherapy and all these things, I see them kind of as alternatives, like uh, as social activities. Like when I tried out this, uh, there's I think only one cryotherapy chamber in Sukhavit Soy 2 in Bangkok, but it's like 5,000 baht. So, but I found I found two like-minded persons to come. So that's what I did on a Friday night rather than you know eating pizza or going to Taco Bell. What was it like? Pretty fun, to be honest, but you know, it's, it's not... I wouldn't do it on a regular basis. It's kind of, we had a lot of fun, but a lot of laughs because you kind of like, how the hell can you go to like minus 200 Celsius or, or whatever it is and you get these special gloves on so you don't touch the metal uh, inside the chamber. But uh, I, you know, I like to try everything once. Uh, it was definitely a fun experience. Totally. That's cool. Let's go back to a comment you made a minute ago. You were talking about the Blue Zone research and the importance of community, and then you were saying you thought it was a good thing, even though perhaps they drew some of the wrong conclusions. And I'm wondering what you meant by that in terms of possibly drawing some of the wrong conclusions from Blue Zone research. And then I'm referring especially to like the, in the Okinawa study where they said they, uh, oh, one of the reasons why they live so long is because they, they eat so many carbs. That was, so there a lot of people highlight the, the importance of either of macros and the macro ratios in terms of a diet, a diet. But I don't think that that study showed that at all. That's just a coincidence correlation because you have the Inuit they don't get really old because you know of the, the harsh 
conditions living in a permanent uh, winter. And they had a mostly highly fat, high protein diet. So I don't, uh, so especially, so I'm referring to like any conclusions derived from these studies in terms of like if you should be eating high or low carb. Okay. That's, I'm glad you touched on that because that opens an interesting discussion and I'd love to hear your take on this because I've read that as well, not only from Okinawa, but Walter Longo talks about it. And he says, if you look at most of the populations in these blue zone areas that are living a long time. They are on a low protein or at least low animal protein diet, and it tends to be more low protein, higher complex carbohydrate. And he wasn't only talking about Okinawa, he was talking about uh, places in the Mediterranean, and he was making the arguments, this is just off the top of my head, but I, I know he made this assertion. And I think he was basically saying that the Inuit is... Uh, more the exception to the rule and that people keep citing that kind of one example. So I'd be curious to hear your your take on that. I think it's just a the diet that people have over, especially in isolated areas or hunter-gatherer tribes, uh, it's just and it's just natural protein and, and fat is you know fills you up a lot and at a higher age you just don't feel that hungry so you go for the lighter foods so it's a purely a practical preference it's a correlation there's no causation there got you okay now doesn't this also vary quite a bit you we you talked about the importance early of genetic testing with yourself and supplements can't this also vary quite a bit by your genetic testing like certain people have genotypes and I'm one of them where they don't process saturated fat as well. So, right. Correct. I have the PP gamma Y as well. So I don't, uh, that's one, of this, there's a couple, I think, but that's one of the genotypes where indeed saturated fats are not uh, metabolized as well and can lead to a high level of, I believe, both total cholesterol and uh, free triglycerides. Um, so depending, I don't, I'm not familiar with uh, percentage of the population that applies to for example, do you have less coconut oil and grass-fed butter or ghee because of that? I do eat less red meat and I do eat more fish, I would say, definitely. But I think, I think it might be saying is wrong, but I believe it's the glycation effect and the problem with saturated fats is especially when you when you eat it or combine it together with sugar. So if you're eating sugar and a lot of saturated fats, or, you know, that's just very heavy for, for the body to, to process. That would make sense. So you, even though you have certain genotype that says, hey, you have a very high probability to uh, not metabolize saturated fats as efficiently as other people, I think if you potentially, you know, could do a carnivore diet based on mostly red meats, but you completely remove all sugars, I don't think you can infer any conclusion from the genetic testing. Okay, interesting. When you say you eat more fish and less red meat, so for example, how many times a week might you eat red meat? Uh, I would say two times a week on average. And yeah, try to eat fish on other days. So for example, last night, my I wasn't I had a really big lunch, late lunch. So I think it was the paleo shepherd's pie. Uh, and then it's, you know, just before 8 p.m. before I was like, mm, a little bit peckish, not that hungry. So I just had a, a lobster. <laughs> that, that's it. But, uh, defrosted it, just put it in the oven for 20 minutes, 150 Celsius, cracked it open, just put some olive oil and rock salt, and that's it. That was my dinner. Nice. Sounds decadent and delicious. It's very easy to have more practical, I would say. It takes five, it takes five minutes. So I'm, I'm a very lazy uh, cook, I would say. Anything that takes more than 30 minutes to prep, I'll prefer to order. Right. Well, Eric, I think this is a great note on which to conclude. I think we hit all of the um, the main topics that we wanted to discuss, unless you feel there's anything untouched that uh, you'd like to open up for discussion. Well, I'm not entirely sure where the majority of your of the listeners of this podcast are, but you know, if they are in Thailand, feel free to reach out to us, uh, ask us any questions, and if they uh, want to be part of our like local little tribe that uh, is trying to you know make healthy eating popular again. Um, look forward yeah, to hear from where you. can people find you? Uh, what's the best place to follow Paleo Robbie on social media 
or plug away? I would say we do it. We do a terrible job at Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I would say our, our newsletter is probably the best. So if you go to our website and if you just leave your email anywhere, you know, we're trying to uh, place an order. You don't even have to make an order. We automatically capture your email and then you should be starting to uh, get some, some updates. So normally people who order a grocery with us, we send them a weekly email, I believe every Monday or Tuesday to see what kind of specials we have. And then for the meal plan, we send an email every Wednesday to announce what's on the menu next week. And for people who are in Thailand, can you talk a little bit more, or perhaps even in Asia and in passing through and visiting, can you talk a little bit more about the kind of events that you're trying to organize in Bangkok? Because I'm, I, for one, am very interested in these meetups that you're organizing. Yeah, so our, our, our partners at the moment are uh, international schools, co-working spaces, and also gyms. So we partnered with about five gyms, uh, two co-working spaces, and we hold events almost every month. And they can either take the form of like a TED Talk type forum. Uh, so for two hours, uh, multiple speakers. Last one uh, in January was at The Hive and Superbit 49. Uh, then we also have uh, cooking classes. So we did one in December, how to make like how to prepare a pasture-raised uh, chicken, which is very different than an, uh, an, a factory uh, uh, industrial chicken. The texture it's very different, much more gamey. And then the third thing we also do is uh, we do chef collaborations. So, for example, on the 21st of February this month. Together with the Park Hyatt Bangkok, we're doing a primal five-course dinner. It's kind of so the paleo is a little bit impractical because the, the variety would be quite narrow. But you know, using Mark Sisson's primal guidelines, where it's just 100% natural foods, nothing artificial, nothing processed. The chefs at five-star hotels can put a pretty decent five-course dinner uh, on the 21st. So if anybody wants to join that as well, I think they can easily find it by Googling it or looking for it on Facebook. Awesome. And are these announcements of events in your newsletter on your website? Correct. They're always on the newsletter. So we would be sending them out to all the active Wonderful. subscribers that we have in our mission. Excellent. Well, Eric, you are a wealth of knowledge and I'm, I'm really impressed by what you had to share, not only on nutrition, but just sort of general health. So I learned a lot from our conversation. I thank you for your time and I look forward to, uh, to meeting you in person in the near future. I hope so. Well, will you be coming to Bangkok anytime soon? You know, I do invariably come down there. I don't have plans at the moment, but the next time I do, I will certainly uh, let you know because I'd love to get together for a coffee or, or meet up at one of your events, which sound awesome. It sounds great. Well, thanks, Adrian. It was a pleasure. And maybe we can do this again someday. That would be great. Thank you so much, Eric. <laughs>